I'm going to ask you to stand with me one more time, as usual, as we give honor to the reading of God's holy word this morning. And last week, we began by looking at the issue of spiritual pride in the disciples that had risen in their hearts at this time. And and we're continuing upon the same theme and trajectory. And here we enter into the theme of stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks, translated here as temptation or cause to sin. And my my hope is by God's grace we will get through verses 5 through 9 today. But I, I fear, and I don't mean that in a terror kind of way, but I do fear that perhaps we will only make it through verses 5 through 7. But... That's our focus. I'm going to read today from verses 5 through 14. Okay? 5 through 14. This is God's holy word. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these holy these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine who never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you and we come to just an extremely weighty text. And God, I I pray that you would guard my mouth and my lips um, from the errors that we saw in Ezekiel chapter 13. God, I I pray you would not allow me to dishearten the righteous where you have not disheartened them, nor, God, to encourage the wicked. But God, that the gospel would be proclaimed and that your people would be sanctified through your word. Lord, do only what you can do today and use these these weak, God, words um, that are surely mixed with sin and unknown defilement, God. Use them, God, for the the use of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, it's true, as we come to this text, that, that we confess, as we've been going through in our Sunday school, the doctrine of Holy Scripture in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, that every part of Scripture is breathed out by God and inspired, and therefore exceedingly valuable to all of God's people. And therefore, we ought, to, we ought to seek to know all of God's Word, the whole counsel of God. But we know very well by experience and by truth that there are certain doctrines and certain portions of God's Holy Word that are more weighty than other portions. And the issue of stumbling blocks is one such 
doctrine. And now to say that, it doesn't strike us as something that is of the weight and consideration of the things that we've just mentioned. But I would just propose to you today that stumbling blocks in Scripture compose three whole chapters of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is wholly taken up by the subject of stumbling blocks. How we behave in the congregation toward one another as not to tempt other people to sin. Romans chapter 14 is wholly taken up with the consideration of Christian liberty and part of that being stumbling blocks. In Matthew chapter 18, a great majority of it taken up with the issue of stumbling blocks. And so today, it's very important for us, the weight of Christ's words, the weight that Holy Scripture gives to this subject, for us to pay attention to these things. Jesus, in fact in this text, warns His disciples about the danger of stumbling blocks. Both in causing stumbling blocks and in receiving stumbling blocks. I phrase that strangely. But causing somebody to stumble or allowing yourself stumbling blocks into your life. And we'll try to go through that. And the purpose of our text here, I want to propose to you Taking out this language of stumbling blocks, which is difficult for us to imagine in our context typically, the purpose of this is that we would first love love and honor one another because God loves us. And second, that we would hate sin. Okay, So, what I'm trying to get at is the way that we avoid causing stumbling blocks to others is primarily that we love and honor one another. And the way that we avoid stumbling blocks in our own life is primarily that we grow in our hatred of sin. So, we're going to try to open that up today. First, I want us to see that we are compelled in this text to grow in our love and honor for one another in verses 5-7. through And the first thing that we should see is that we are compelled to grow in our love and honor for one another because of God's love for His disciples. And because of that love, we receive all Christians. The little ones talked about in our text are disciples, and we are compelled to receive them because God has received them. Now, I want us to think about the context that we are in. Last week, we discussed in verses 1-4 through that the disciples had spiritual pride in them. That they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And they thought, like the world teaches, and in every other system of the world, that we become the greatest by stepping on other people and getting one up on them. But in the kingdom of heaven, humility is what is revered. In fact, Jesus makes the illustration of taking a little child and sets them in the midst of these proud men and says, you need to make yourself of the low status of this little child to become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and in fact, to enter it at all. That is, in our conversion, we all come to God with nothing to offer, nothing to bring, no righteousness, no greatness, and trust that God of His own grace and mercy will save us. And we are called throughout our lives to remind ourselves of that principle that we are not great spiritually. We must humble ourselves. We are to become like little children. But the text here, it follows that same theme. 
of becoming like a little child, but it shifts the emphasis. Instead of becoming something, it shifts to how we're to deal with those who come into the church. Okay? How are we to deal with others who we describe as little children? And what we have here is that we are to receive them. Now, the first thing that we have to see is that there's a reason that we receive little children. The reason that we receive little children. And I think the temptation in reading this passage is to skip over verse 5. Because the overwhelming weight of our text is the judgment that comes upon the world, on the individual who makes stumbling blocks for other people, that we, we tend to negate the blessing that we see in verse 5. But I would propose to you here today that if we skip verse 5, we miss a very important argument, and it really adds weight to what Christ gives to the rest of this. Okay? Verse 5 tells us we are to receive children, one such child. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That is, that there is a hidden and underlying spiritual reality to receiving disciples into Christ's church. And that is that they are united with Jesus Christ Himself. That He has received them. Now, I want us to think about that great reality. That somebody with no status comes, professes faith in Jesus Christ, and our reaction is to receive that little child because if you receive Him, you receive me. What a great honor it is to receive somebody of dignity and honor, isn't it? If a queen or... I'm not going to say a president because I don't think that works in our, our American context. Sometimes we don't like to receive our presidents. But if we receive somebody of great dignity and honor, it's a great blessing upon us. And Jesus Christ tells us that when we receive anyone who believes in Him, we receive Jesus Christ Himself. They are united to Him. And we know the language of Holy Scripture, don't we? That we are united to Jesus Christ organically in that He is our husband. He is the vine. We are the branches. He is our brother. But I want us to notice the specific words of this text. Notice that Jesus Christ does not tell us that if we receive all disciples, we receive Him. Nor does He even use the plural. If we receive disciples, we receive Jesus Himself. Rather, He points with very specific language, if you receive even one of these little children, you receive Me. Jesus Christ is so united to the least disciple to one disciple, that to receive that one is to receive Jesus Christ Himself. Not poetically, but truthfully. Oh, and there's such strong language of this throughout the New Testament. I'm going to have you turn to two texts. Acts chapter 9. These are familiar to us. Again, I want us to contact that when we receive little children, we receive them because they're united to Jesus Christ truthfully. Notice in Acts chapter 9, this is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. And notice in verse 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul rightly says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
Now, Jesus Christ has been ascended to heaven for a long time at this point. He is not being persecuted. He is in the presence of His Father and there are pleasures forevermore there. But Jesus is so united to His people that are being persecuted that He can say, again, not poetically, you're persecuting Me and seeking after Me when you seek after these people. And then back in Matthew chapter 25, at the end of time, Jesus tells us that one of the reasons that such blessing will come upon the church and such judgment will come upon unbelieving world is because they treated His disciples in a way that was either congruent or not with this reality. Notice in verse 40 alone, without reading the whole text, and the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, notice the language, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You did it to me. We do not receive people into the church because they have their act together, right? We don't receive people into the church because they have all the correct doctrine. We receive people into the church not because they've attained some level of Christian spirituality and maturity. Rather, we receive people into the church simply because they name the name of Jesus Christ in confession and repentance. And isn't this what Christ taught a couple of chapters previous? In Matthew chapter 10, He says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, notice, because he is a disciple. Because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Doesn't this cause us to shift our thinking, brothers and sisters, how we think about one another? We don't receive people into the church for fleshly reasons. Rather, when we see somebody that confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we should have in our mind, we receive Him because He has a husband in Jesus Christ and a brother. He is the temple that Christ dwells in. And these things should shift our thinking. So, if we know why we're to receive, because they're united to the King of all the universe, the question that we should ask now is, what does it mean to receive? If we're commanded and given great blessing for receiving a disciple, what does that mean? Well, I want us to think about the context that we have here. Notice that Jesus Christ is probably seven to eight months away from His crucifixion. And as we pointed out time and time again, He is trying to prepare His disciples for leaving the earth. And what are these men going to be doing after He leaves? They're going to be proclaiming the Gospel to the entire world. Making disciples out of all the nations and teaching them to observe all the things that Jesus Christ commanded them. And even further in the context, if you look down with me at verses 15 through 20, the context that Jesus Christ has in mind is the local church. That we receive somebody into discipleship in the local church. This does not mean when we receive a disciple that we're just getting along with them. It does not mean that we just put up with them. Rather, we welcome them into the discipleship of the local church. And I would say to you that it's welcoming them into formal membership in the local church. And we do this. okay, Not just to... And I know I'm putting a lot of qualifiers here, but... 
Try to track with me here. When we receive somebody into the local church, we are not receiving them just to put them on a membership roll or to put their picture up on the website if we had one, <laughs> right? Yeah, which we will. That's another subject. But we receive them primarily to do good to them, spiritual good to them. Now, turn with me to Romans chapter 15 to see this. The same kind of language used by Paul in a similar context of stumbling blocks and welcoming one another. The Apostle Paul himself says this in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Notice, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. That's important language. To build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Let's skip down to verse 7. Therefore, to sum it up, Paul says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The sum of this is that when we receive people into God's church, we receive them to edify them, to love them, and to build them up. To guide them to the heavenly kingdom toward Jesus Christ. That's what it means to receive a disciple. To receive a little child. God so loves those who believe in His Son, that we must treat them with the highest honor in welcoming them and doing them good. But, if that is true, we must logically avoid the opposite, shouldn't we? If it is true that we are called to look at God's people with the eyes, the spiritual eyes that see them as God's people united to Jesus Christ, and therefore I must do them good because I'm doing Jesus good, the opposite must be true. I must avoid all occasions of doing spiritual evil to them. It might sound obvious, and I would say it this way, because of God's love for His disciples, we're not only to receive them, but to avoid all stumbling blocks. Now, I've used that word multiple times. You might say, why do I use it? Because it's not in our text, right? As we read the ESV, we see that two different phrases are being used here. You'll notice that two phrases are repeated three times. Three times, Jesus, in the ESV, says, cause to sin. Notice that in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And it's also used in verses 8 and 9, if your hand or foot causes you to sin. And in verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin. The second group of words is temptation. And all three of these are in verse 7. Right? Woe to the world for temptations to sin. It is necessary temptations come, but woe to the man by whom the temptation comes. But these are not two separate words. This is one word in the Greek, one root word, which is scandalizo in its verb form, or scandalon in its noun form, okay? And it literally means a stumbling block, something that hinders somebody in their way. You might think of Leviticus in the law, that it was a law written by God that you shall not put a stumbling block before the blind. 
That they're going on their way somewhere and you set something deceptively in front of their way to hinder them. And this word, what's difficult about it, is it's translated so many different ways in our New Testament. It's translated as hindrance, as offense, as stumbling block. And especially the word offense that we see there, sometimes we can have in our minds that it means that if somebody just has displeasure about anything that we do, right? That we're being a stumbling block to them. But that is not what it means. In fact, I propose to you that Jesus Christ here is saying that we're doing the opposite of receiving when we put a stumbling block before them. Or as James Durham, which is a 16th century pastor, he said that a stumbling block is the opposite of provoking one another to love and good works. So instead of being the opposite of pleasing somebody or making them feel good, a stumbling block is the opposite of edifying somebody. And that's what generally a stumbling block means. But in our text here today, it has a little more specific meaning. It's to cause somebody to fall away from the Christian faith. To cause somebody to fall away from the Christian faith. Ultimately, our text is concerned with treating disciples, notice, with such a lack of love and a lack of honor that we tempt them to fall away from the faith. We put something in their way that they're not going to reach the goal that Christ has for them. In fact, the same word is used in Matthew chapter 16 with Peter. You might recall that when Peter says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You're not going to go to Jerusalem and die and suffer. Jesus says this, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance, a scandalizo or a scandalon to me. You are a stumbling block to me. You're hindering me from going and accomplishing the will of my Father in this particular way. And Christ would have us to know that treating His beloved disciples in this way, instead of loving them, doing the opposite, causing them to fall away from the Christian faith, it brings great wrath upon those who would do that. Now, I hope that we see that the love of God suffuses all of this. It's because God chose to save us by His grace and mercy alone that He came down and caused those who cause offenses like us and stumbling blocks. Those who are wicked and evil. He chose to save us by His own grace and mercy and He put within us a childlike faith to come to Him for mercy and grace alone, and for somebody to come along to that precious child who He cleaned up, made righteous, and to try to tempt them to fall away from the faith, this is very offensive in the sight of God. First, notice, great wrath comes upon the individual who does this. Great wrath comes upon the individual. Notice in verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. If I can beat a dead horse and give you an illustration, um, you you guys might remember the Westerbecks that used to come here. They're a young family. They'd just gotten out of college and they were going to, to move on to Tennessee. And during a period of time, maybe three months in the summer, me and Erica had the privilege of housing them in our house, okay? Putting them up. And I was installing a floor at the time. 
And Garrett's dad was a professional flooring installer. And he knew that I was having problems figuring something out. And he said, call me. I called him. He offered very helpful advice. And the reason he did it is because I was treating his son in his mind so well, right? That he was going to, to do good to me, right? And such is the love of a father, right? That if you treat my, my child, my daughters rightly, I'm going to honor and receive you in such a way. But if you, if you hurt them, right? It's only the grace of God that can usually cause a father to withhold great wrath from coming. And our Heavenly Father, there's great wrath for the individuals that cause His people to sin. Um, A stumbling block to God's valued people has the most horrific punishment attached. And I want us to just focus, as hard as it is, on the graphic illustration that Jesus Christ gives here. And the graphicness of it is really somewhat shocking. He, he has us to picture a great millstone, right? Now, there were millstones that women would commonly use that they would put on top of each other and grind grain into flour. But a great millstone was something that no human can turn. In fact, you had to have donkeys or other beasts of burden put to turn this great millstone around. And Jesus says, picture having that great millstone fastened around your neck and drowned not just in the shallow end, in the depth of the sea. There's no possibility of coming back from that. And it's even said that perhaps the pagans of this time did this exact kind of punishment. They would send people out to the depth of the sea and drown them with a great millstone fastened around their neck. Oh, but Jesus goes further, doesn't he? Because he said it would be better. It would be better for that to happen than for somebody to cause one of my little ones to stumble. And this can be pointing to nothing. Nothing but eternal conscious torment. Eternal conscious torment. It's preferable for the most terrible kind of punishment, the most terrible kind of death that we can think of. That is a preferable thing than what God has for somebody who causes somebody to fall away from the faith. But it's not only on the individual that God's great wrath comes, is it? It's on the world. It's on the world. Now, I want us to notice the reason why Jesus brings this up. He says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. That the individual who finds himself in this particular sin, he's in the kind of sin that characterizes the whole world system. The great wrath comes upon this world in part because it tempts God's chosen people to sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil are the great enemies of the Christian. And the world, as we see in Pilgrim's Progress, it tempts the believer to come away from the path walking to the celestial city and to imbibe in the love of this world and to fall away from Christ. In fact, Jesus says this in one of His parables in Matthew chapter 13. Notice with me, Matthew 13, 41. Christ again uses this word scandalizo or scandalon to say why judgment comes. Notice in the parable of the weeds, the Son of Man in verse 41 will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom, notice, all causes of sin, all stumbling blocks and all lawbreakers. And the wonderful thing about even the new heavens and the new earth is there's no stumbling blocks for God's people. 
There's nobody out there, nobody on the internet, nobody in our churches, nobody in our families that is coming after Christians and tempting them to fall away from the Christian faith. No discovery channel about who the real Jesus is in the kingdom of heaven. Wrath comes upon the world. This is one of the primary reasons for God's judgment on the world is because of stumbling blocks. And this should highlight to our mind what a big deal this is to the mind of our Savior and the mind of God. He loves His people so much that He highlights and it increases the judgment on this earth. Now, okay, I think we have time. That's good. I want us also to see what Jesus says here. So we don't skip it. He says... Verse 7, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom that temptation comes. And, you know, that can cause us a little bit of consternation sometimes that God says, Jesus says here, stumbling blocks, even though they're so grievous to God's nature, they're necessary for temptations to come. It's a necessary thing. They're necessary for a number of reasons. The first, knowing that God, He brings the ultimate good out of evil. That there was nothing that the devil of the world was trying to do in the cross of Christ but cause a stumbling block to God's people. A stumbling block to the Son of God. But God chose to use that to bring about the greatest good. The salvation of multitudes. But God also uses it for the cleansing of the Christian church. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 19 to see this. 1 John, did I say chapter 19? 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Notice, verse 18, children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. Notice the necessity that it might become plain that they are not all of us. God uses temptations and stumbling blocks for the necessity of cleansing His people. But He also uses it for correction for God's people. How many times have you noticed that there is something that was tempting you to fall away from the faith or at least even tempting you, provoking you to sin in such a way? And when you came to God's Word and saw the correction in God's Word, you went away from it. God uses stumbling blocks to expose in our hearts our love for the world so that we would flee from it and flee to Jesus Christ. These things are necessary, but that should not cause us to think that they're allowable in some sense in God's mind. It says, woe to the man by whom temptation comes. We are culpable. There is a curse pronounced on the willing instrument. And therefore, we must be on guard. And so, brothers and sisters, as we consider verses 5-7 through of this text, I want us to impress upon our minds that stumbling blocks are a great offense to God because it is the opposite of receiving a disciple that God has saved. And because of these great promises and warnings, we must transform our minds. We must transform our minds. The least, the most annoying brother or sister in Christ 
is now a brother of Jesus Christ. And I ask you, do you you believe that? Those people who grate on your nerves, whether in the church, in your family, your spouse, your children, the most annoying little disciple of Jesus Christ is of more value than we could ever recognize. This little child is a bride of Jesus Christ, purchased by the blood of the Son of God. Matthew 12, 48, do you remember the scene? The Jesus preaching, and in the middle of this little house where Christ is proclaiming the Word of God, His fleshly brothers and sisters and mother come to Him, right? And they're trying to convince Him to stop doing what He's doing because He's causing some waves. And Jesus says this, He replied to the man who told Him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching his hand out toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The least disciple in God's church, and I'm going to say it again just to put it more in your... The most annoying person you can think of that names the name of Christ is one who will inherit all things. Is one who will judge angels of great value and worth. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we must put away all fleshly distinctions and replace them with spiritual ones. Colossians 3.11, does it not say here that is in Jesus Christ? There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ, notice, is in all. Is all, rather, and in all. And this text ought to cause us to transform our minds because if we're looking at one another only in fleshly categories, as somebody that's rich or poor or annoying or pleasurable, we're going to be tempted to put a stumbling block in that person's way. We're going to desire in our hearts, I just kind of wish that that person would leave the church. If we don't say that out loud, if they left, we'd say, well, like we said last week, good riddance. And that's a, that's a great sin that we should be on guard about. We need to transform our mind. And as we've pointed at before, I think the great text for this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'd have us turn there to read it, to have it before our faces. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 16 through 17. Paul writes, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How are we to look at disciples of Jesus Christ as a new creation? That doesn't mean that they've just turned over a new moral leaf. They stopped drinking, whatever it might be. They're a part of the new heavens and the new earth that God is remaking in holiness and righteousness and honor that He is making for His people to inhabit and to rule over. That's who the least of these disciples is to Jesus Christ. We must not, brothers, despise any of God's people. And if we see that in our hearts, we must immediately excise it. Because it is the opposite of receiving. And it is congruent with putting a stumbling block 
in somebody's way. We do this by looking to Christ who bore all of our sin. Now, in some way, shape, or form, we have all been stumbling blocks in our lives, haven't we? We have not done what is edifying for our brother when we could have done what is edifying for our brother. We have despised God's people at times. We must admit that and be, be honest before God. But Jesus Christ in His grace puts this here to tell us this is a great sin in God's sight. And we must repent of it. And we must learn to view God's people how God views them. And not how we want to view them. But we also must call out to Jesus Christ to make us more loving and honoring to God's people. And I propose to you as a sum to all of this, love is the grace that keeps us from such wickedness. It's only by loving God for saving us and loving one another because God has chosen to save them that we can stop being a stumbling block for other people. I think we have time to continue. But we also must grow in hatred for our sin. Okay, So we are compelled not only to grow in our love and honor of brothers and sisters, we're compelled to grow in our hatred for personal sin in our lives. In verses 8 and 9, we have these two great illustrations given by Jesus Christ of stumbling blocks, not coming to others, but into our own lives. Private sins are the start of stumbling blocks in other people. Let me say that again. Allowing stumbling blocks in our own lives is the start always and in every case of causing stumbling blocks in the lives of other people. And here Jesus Christ again switches the emphasis. He's talked to the disciples personally to become like little children. Then He opened it up. That, that should inform how you deal with others, little children. Now He comes back to the personal character. He switches to avoiding stumbling personally in our own lives. And again, the connection is this. All who love to be stumbling blocks to others begin with carelessness in their heart towards their own personal sin. And I believe, as I've considered this text, that Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1 is clear. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read it quickly. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We have a progression there, don't we? From those who walk, those who stand, and those who sit, showing the establishment of sin in the heart. Those who sit in the seat of scoffer are so established in their own personal way of sinning that they, they sit on the way and they scoff and they try to bring people off the way themselves. This is what happens. And how many sad cases of this do we see? Not to mention names of celebrities because they're nobody in God's sight. But how many times do we hear of people online who have fallen away from the faith because they have nurtured doubts in their own hearts about Christianity? And now they're sitting on YouTube and they're putting out videos about why they fell away from the faith and they, whether they say it or not, are encouraging other people to do it. I know many Christians who, thank God, have stayed on the path who have been greatly troubled and had their faith greatly shaken by stumbling blocks such as these and it's because they allowed it in their own heart. Now, brothers and sisters, we've talked many times before that doubt is a common part of the Christian life. 
right? But we should emulate John the Baptist in this. When he went to prison, he had doubts. Do we, do we seek after, look for another? John the Baptist didn't go to Christ's enemies trying to find out whether the, thing, the doubts in his heart were true. He went to Jesus Christ Himself. And brothers, if there is doubt in your heart, if somebody's tempting you to fall away from the faith in the living God, I tell you to go to your pastors, go to your brothers and sisters, and get those stumbling blocks out of your life. Because if you allow them to take root, you will become one yourself. Sad cases of those who have taken a hold of contrary and destructive doctrines in their private lives, only to take a seat of the scoffer and lead others out of the way. All of this begins with a carelessness to personal sin. And so Jesus tells us to excise those things that cause us to stumble. Now, Christ tells us here that if your hand cut it off because it's better to enter into life maimed than to enter into hell with two hands and two feet. And likewise, your eye. Okay? And I don't think that we need to think too much about this, but Jesus doesn't mean this absolutely literally. Okay? Although, it could be taken that way. Rather, Jesus is telling us that the things that are most important to us in this life, such as your eye. God uses this illustration many times, doesn't He? He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Right? The eye is a very important thing for us. And there are few people who would accept millions of dollars in order to be done with maybe their right eye. But Jesus says that eternal life that is offered through the grace of the Gospel should be so important to you that even such a thing is as valuable as your eye or your hand or your foot, you'd be able to dispense with it if it hinders you from entering into life. Mutilation of the most significant thing in your life should be what we think of here. Those things that are closest to us and most valuable to us, that eternal life is more valuable than any of these things. Now, before we go further and try to detail some of the things that we, can, we should cut out of our life if they're causing us to sin, we need to be very careful because there are positive and negative ways to get stumbling blocks out of our lives. And I'm going to have you turn to another passage. It's very helpful for me. Romans chapter 13. And the reason I bring this to you is because if we just start detailing all the things that would tempt us to sin, we're going to be sitting in a sensory deprivation tank somewhere all the days of our life, but then I'm left with my own heart, which might be worse. In Romans 13, we have the great wisdom of the Apostle Paul. He tells us in verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but... Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the positive. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So first, the negative. What are we to cut out of our lives? The thing, we are to cut out of our lives anything that tempts us out of the way of faith. That tempts us out of the way to the celestial city and from faith and repentance to put them away. And that can be people. Now, this is what Jesus Christ mostly brings up, especially in Matthew chapter 10, that we are to love Christ more than we love wife or children or brother, right? That if those things are tempting us to fall away from the Christian faith, we ought to limit the time that we have with those things. 
And again, we need to take that carefully. It could mean in the church. That's why directly after that church discipline is talked about. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And if we allow sin to just grow in the congregation without taking it out, it can cause a stumbling block for God's people. But the positive is that we are to grow in love for all the things that God loves. Now, I just want you to think about that with me. We can't live as monks. We can't go off in the desert somewhere and be totally away from the world. That is not what God calls us to do. In fact, Jesus prays, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. We are to excise all possibility of sin, but we are not to go out of the world. And therefore, we must grow to love the things that God loves. And this is what I most often tell people when they come into my office with with problems of self-control or whatever it is. It's good. Use pornography as an example. The goal of Christian counseling is for a man to be able to sit into a, in a room full of filthy images and not desire any of those things. To so love God that he does not desire and is not tempted to go after those. But until that time comes, to give no opportunity for any of those things to enter his heart, his eyes, or his mind. But we are to grow, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does this mean? It means to put on what Jesus Christ has done in the gospel. It's to look at Him as the one who paid for all of our sins, who sent the Holy Spirit that we might live a life that's holy to Him. In fact, Psalm 119.165 says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. Nothing can make them stumble. Growing in love for what God says in His Holy Word is a prescription that the Word of God gives for us for avoiding stumbling in our lives. Right? We can cut off the things that cause us to sin, and that's good and right, but we also can grow in love for the things of God so we don't desire those things any longer or to a far less degree. And I'm going to end today by reading from 1 John chapter 2, and I'd ask you to turn there with me. In this theme of growing in our hatred for sin, John talks about the positive way to do this as well. To grow in the love for God and hatred for the things of this world. Notice in verse 10, first of all, John tells us, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. And then in verses 15 through 16, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, that does not mean if you have any love in your heart for the things of the world that God doesn't love you. It means, as Jesus Christ taught, that there cannot exist in the human heart a love for the world and a love for the Father at the same time. These things are mutually exclusive. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so John tells us to to love God to a degree where we, we grow in our hatred for the things of this world. And in conclusion today, I want us to see from this text, and there can be so much more said, 
That we are compelled to grow in love and honor for God's people so that we can guard against not being a stumbling block to them. Rather, to welcome and receive them because Jesus Christ has welcomed and received them. And to have in our minds that putting a stumbling block before others always starts in the human heart. And we must be careful to excise out of us any love for sin lest we, we go that extra step and sit in the seat of the scoffer. As we turn our eyes to the communion table today, we see the reception that Jesus Christ has for His people.